You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Hindsight is twenty twenty, Jen. <laughs> Everyone can make the right choice if you know what the wrong ones are. Though it was now morning, the light was still exceedingly faint and doubtful. The buildings all around us tottered, and though we stood upon open ground, yet as the place was narrow and confined, there was no remaining without imminent danger. We therefore resolved to quit the town. A panic-stricken crowd followed us, and, as to a mind distracted with terror every suggestion seems more prudent than its own, pressed on us in dense array to drive us forward as we came out. Being at a convenient distance from the houses, we stood still, in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The chariots, which we had ordered to be drawn out, were so agitated backwards and forwards, though upon the most level ground, that we could not keep them steady, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea seemed to roll back upon itself, and to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth. It is certain at least the shore was considerably enlarged, and several sea animals were left upon it. On the other side, a black and dreadful cloud, broken with rapid zigzag flashes, revealed behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These last were like sheet lightning, but much larger. Upon this our Spanish friend whom I had mentioned above, addressing himself to my mother and me with great energy and urgency, if your brother, he said, if your uncle be safe, he surely wishes you may be so too. But if he perished, it was his desire, no doubt, that you might both survive him. Why, therefore, do you delay your escape a moment? We could never think of our own safety, we said, while we were uncertain of his. Upon this our friend left us and withdrew from the danger with the utmost precipitation. Soon afterwards the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri and the promontory of Messinum. My mother now besought, urged, even commanded me to make my escape at any rate, which, as I was young, I might easily do. As for herself, she said, her age and corpulency rendered all attempts of that sort impossible. However, she would willingly meet death if she could have the satisfaction of seeing that she was not the occasion of mine. But I absolutely refused to leave her, and, taking her by the hand, compelled her to go with me, 
She complied with great reluctance, and not without many reproaches to herself for retarding my flight. The ashes now began to fall upon us, though in no great quantity. I looked back. A dense, dark mist seemed to be following us, spreading itself over the country like a cloud. Let us turn out of the high road, I said, while we can still see, for fear that should we fall in the road, we should be pressed to death in the dark by the crowds that are following us. We had scarcely sat down when night came upon us, not such as we have when the sky is cloudy or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up and all the lights put out. You might hear the shrieks of women, the screams of children, and the shouts of men, some calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, and seeking to recognize each other by the voices that replied one lamenting his own fate, another that of his family, some wishing to die from the very fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were now no gods at all, and that the final, endless night of which we have heard had come upon the world. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. The Pompeii edition! (laughs) We finally made it! Oh, it's been over five years and I've been waiting for this moment like the wild volcano nerd that I am. So that cold open that Jenny read us was a portion of the letter that Pliny the Younger wrote to Tacitus describing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And I couldn't imagine a better beginning to this episode, so I just had to include it. This is one of the episodes that we were so excited about doing from the very beginning of starting this podcast. Jen had this idea about doing a Pompeii episode in exactly this format. I thought it was genius. We just didn't get to it till now because it didn't match the theme of what we were doing, but now it does. And uh, here we are. Yeah. So thank you, Jenny. This is not going to be your typical Pompeii episode. And I'm saying that now because I know how much you all love our deep dives into all things historical and mythological. And while I did try to dive pretty deep into the history, we're not going to dwell too much on the town frozen in time. No, instead, we're going to focus on what has haunted me since I was a little teenager translating Pliny's letters, both of them, in Latin class. Because my question as I was doing that translation work was... Could you, or me, or anyone survive Pompeii? Well, I mean, you know, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, but let's just say Pompeii. And the answer is yes, maybe, if you were lucky, and made all the right choices at exactly the right time. Many people survived the catastrophic eruption. While most people focus on those who perished at Pompeii and Herculaneum, this episode is going to look at those who survived and how the choices they made contributed to their survival or demise. This is Ancient History Fangirl. Could you survive a volcano? Choose your own adventure edition. Woohoo! <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. I've been so anticipating this for weeks as Jen has been writing it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. And I was telling my husband to, you know, we're all contemporary. My Jenny, me and my husband, we grew up in the 80s and 90s with the Choose Your Own Adventure books. And those books, I loved them so much. They were always so wild. So when I told him I was doing this, he was like, do you have, a, do you, do you have dice? Are you going to roll the dice to see what happens? I'm like, no. 
is a podcast. I have to simplify it a little bit. I don't remember ever doing this with dice. <laughs> Those are the more technical ones, the more British ones, I'd say. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so I turn over to my co-host. Let's get going. People are going to be here for a while. This is a long episode. Strap in. So let's set the stage. This is a prologue. When in Pompeii, choose the right month, because that's actually a question that we have in the historical research. So let's set the stage. You're visiting Pompeii. Now, before we get any further, we have to talk a little bit about Pompeii and when you might be visiting, because it makes a huge difference to your survival. The year is 79 AD, and the date is in dispute. While we have eyewitness accounts like Pliny the Younger, who claimed that Mount Vesuvius erupted on August 24th, 79 AD, there are other theories about the date of the eruption. Modern research tends to think that the eruption of Mount Vesuvius was actually about two months later than the date Pliny the Younger recalled, meaning the eruption happened in late October or possibly early November of 79 AD. Now, according to an article on the New York Times on the new dating of the famous eruption, quote, Research at the site, said Sandro DeVita, a co-author who works at the Vesuvius Observatory. Oh my goodness. Does, do we know anyone who listens to this podcast who works at the Vesuvius Observatory? Would it be possible for us to visit it one day? Yeah, can I get a tour? Yeah. Anyway, the co-author who works at the Vesuvius Observatory has also offered additional hints of a later dating from the discovery of typically autumnal fruit like walnuts, chestnuts, and pomegranates to wine already sealed in dolia or terracotta containers suggesting the grape harvest was over. On-site excavations had also found that braziers had been in use at the time of the eruption, and some of the victims were wearing heavy clothes, still visible in plaster casts. This all offers a different interpretation from what Pliny wrote, he said. Now, this research suggests that the date of the eruption might be in question. The autumnal berries and fruit were harvested. The grapes were pressed into wine. People were wearing their autumn clothes. All of these things wouldn't have happened in August. I mean, I've been to Pompeii in August. You, you don't dress like that. Rather, what they're showing people wearing would have been what they wore in late October. And the interesting thing is, this late October date has become part of the discussion again recently because of an inscription that was found at Pompeii. According to the New York Times article, quote, it was likely scribbled by a worker who was restoring the villa at the time of the eruption and reads, quote, the 16th day before the calends of November, he indulged in food in an immoderate way. The date corresponds to October 17th. So is this a, an inscription that took place like on the day of the eruption? No. So this, what this tells us is that this inscription happened on October 17th, 79 AD, they believe. And if that is the case, Pompeii couldn't have been buried in ash in August 24th, 79 AD, because people were still doing repairs at Pompeii in October. Yeah. So modern thinking is that this eruption happened in the autumn. Other evidence is the clothes that people were wearing, very heavy garments, as we've said. This is from an article on Getty.edu about the dating of the eruption. Quote, Ever since the rediscovery of the buried Vesuvian cities in the 18th century, some scholars have argued that the eruption occurred in autumn. 
Their evidence? The heavy clothing worn by some of the victims, still visible in plaster casts made from the cavities left in the volcanic ash by their bodies. Likewise, braziers were discovered in many houses in the region. Neither would be appropriate for the summer heat of southern Italy. Other scholars have countered that victims might have donned heavier clothing as they fled the fiery falling ash, and braziers were used for cooking as well as heating, so may well have been used in summer. But, now here's the tricky bit. What about the eyewitness account? Pliny the Younger tells us the eruption happened in August of 79 AD. Or does he? The original letter that Pliny wrote no longer exists, but his words, his account, has come down to us through copies of his letter. The oldest copy is where we get the date from, but it is a copy of a copy. Could the date have been corrupted or mistranslated? Possibly. Even probably. Ooh, I've got my conspiracy tinfoil hat on. And that has to do with who was writing down and copying these letters and what might be gained from altering the date. So according to that same New York Times article, the oldest copy of Pliny the Younger's famous letter is stored in the Florence-based Medicia Lorenziana Library. Monks would have copied down Pliny's letter in the Middle Ages to preserve it for the future. And the date of the 24th of August had a special meaning to the narrative they were trying to craft. Again, this is from the New York Times article, quote, Biagio Ghiaccio, another co-author at Italy's National Research Council, apologies if I butchered your name, hopefully I didn't, said that some historians believe that in copying the text, the monks who penned the Florence version wanted to associate the eruption with an ancient Roman festival known as the Mundus, celebrated on August 24th. Romans believed that on that day, a circular crater leading into the underworld was opened, allowing souls to emerge. So here's the question. Did the monks who copied this letter have a real Christian monk agenda for associating the eruption of Mount Vesuvius with an ancient Roman festival called the Mundus, a festival about a crater in the earth that allowed souls to leave the underworld? I mean, yes, yes, and yes. This was another way of demonizing the ancient Romans and their worship while also moving forward the narrative of Christianity as the one god and the one savior complex. So they were trying to show that the Pompeians were being punished by God for holding this pagan festival. Is that the situation? Correct. That's what I think is happening here. They were trying to show like that, you know. They deserved it. They deserved it. In fact, that narrative of Pompey being punished by God's wrath is something that repeats later in fiction, particularly by Christian authors. Now, Pompey becomes code for what happened to those Wicked, naughty, decadent Romans who believed in all those gods. Death. (laughs) Death and destruction. It's that very Christian, our God is better than their God and we win. Open your heart to Jesus or else. Have you heard the good news? (laughs) Have you heard the good news about not being killed by a volcano? (laughs) Exactly. Now, the novel, The Last Days of Pompeii by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, was written in 1834, not too long after I believe Pompeii was found again. It's very much an in-your-face look at the decadent Romans who deserve to be destroyed by God in the form of a volcano. Now, the righteous Christians in this novel and the Christian converts all get to live. Naturally, now this book has been made into several films, and I think, Jenny, maybe we should watch the 1984 miniseries, which is free on YouTube, and do a Patreon on it, because it is a wild ride. There is, like, so many archetypes. There's a a holier-than-thou blind servant girl a gladiator, 
naughty, naughty Romans, Christians. You're, we're going to yell at the TV so much. Let's do it. I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> but there are other counters to the date being in August. Again, from the Getty.edu article, quote, Scientific research has also contributed to both sides of this debate. Analysis of the remains of ancient fish sauce called garum found in Pompeii seems to support the traditional date in August because the fish from which it was made were most plentiful in summer. Archaeobotanical evidence, on the other hand, points to the opposite. Pomegranates and walnuts, which would not have been harvested until autumn, were also found. Atmospheric studies, meanwhile, have suggested that the fallout pattern of volcanic ash reflects high-altitude southeasterly winds, which today are prevalent in the region in autumn. Wind patterns may, however, have changed in the almost 2,000 years since the eruption. So the dates are fuzzy. So it matters so much because the entirety of your survival depended on what direction the winds were coming from. Now, assuming that the wind patterns are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago, if it was autumn, the winds would have been coming from the south and blowing inland. Now, that will have a massive impact on the uh, ash cloud that will form and the direction the ash cloud will take. It also has an effect on what's happening by the coast on the beaches, right? Yes, exactly. So if the winds are blowing from the south and inland, what, what will happen is you will have waves that are now coming into shore at a higher speed. It'll make it much harder to escape by boat because you won't be able to use the wind to sail your boat out. You'll have to rely on rowers, and they'll be rowing against some pretty choppy seas. Also, the direction of the wind matters because that's the direction in which the ash cloud is going to travel. So if the wind is blowing towards the south, that means that a lot of the fallout from the ash cloud, including the pumice, the stones, eventually the pyroclastic flows are going to go more in that direction. That's why it's super important that we spent all that time talking to you about what direction the wind was and what time of year it was. Right. So we're going to go with October as our date because that seems to be what most of the evidence on the ground is pointing to, although there is contradictory evidence of that. And we're just going to admit that it may or may not be the right choice. All this digression that we've just had was to set the stage for when you might be visiting Pompeii and what it might look like. For the purpose of our episode, let's assume it's October, a bright and beautiful day in October. You are visiting Pompeii to catch up with old friends. You arrived last night and couldn't help but feel like something was amiss. The earth rumbled more than usual and it made it very hard for you to sleep. But the new day has dawned and everything seems quiet and clear. The perfect weather for a wander around the marketplace and then maybe a visit to the baths. It's been years since you've had a chance to escape to this bustling resort town. You had almost forgotten how lovely it is, with the sea on one side and the looming mountains on the other. One mountain dominates the landscape, Mount Vesuvius, Hercules' mountain, the mountain that is sacred to him because he passed through the fiery plains on his labors, subduing bandits and allegedly watching the mountains spew fire. That was the cradle story your mother told you. Your father told you that Pompeii was famous for one thing, its devotion to Venus and all her earthly priestesses. Your father, unsurprisingly, never told you that story when your mother was around. You're excited about the big gladiatorial matches that are scheduled for this week. You've needed this break and are determined to make the most of it. You're not sure when you'll have a chance to escape the pressures of work and visit a place as lovely as Pompeii. Question. What is my work, Jen? Well, here's the thing, Jenny. I had to explain this to Jenny earlier. 
Because it's been a while since I did a choose your own adventure. It has. When you do a choose your own adventure, the point is you are the character. So you, Jenny, are the character. I have decided to romanize your name. Your name is Ginerva, and you are a high class Atira. Of course I am. I'm the highest class Atira. You're out of the game now for the most part. <laughs> well, obviously, because I made my fortune when I was 15. As one does. As you do, because it's a dark, dark, dark world. <laughs> That's right. And now, you know, I've aged out. I'm 21. I'm clearly over the hill and I'm just living on my, I'm living on my royalties at the moment. I mean, of course you'd be Hatira. You're well-educated. You're outspoken. You're independently wealthy. Naturally. Naturally. So the cool breeze blows in from the harbor as you and your friends walk down to the marketplace. You are talking, remembering good times. You stop to pick a pomegranate off a laden branch, the fruit heavy and ripe. You remark on the size of the fruit and your friends laugh. Your head aches from the wine you consumed last night. One too many craters. This morning you still feel in the thrall of Dionysus. And you don't mind that feeling, as if everything is blurry around the edges and sweet and ripe and safe. And for a moment, everything is as it should be. It's around 9 a.m., bright and clear and still cool, but you know it will be a hot day once the sun reaches its apex. Your friends and you are moving slowly. One of them suggests getting another cup of wine to stave off the headache he feels beginning to form. You all laugh and agree, stopping at a small food stall. Just as the merchant hands over a hunk of fresh cheese, bread, grapes, and four cups of wine, you feel the earth begin to move. At first, you are certain this cannot be real. Your brain is still rolling from the sea voyage, or maybe the wine. But as the second tremor begins, you know that this is happening. You duck, covering your head as one of your friends pulls you into a doorway. Everything around you is moving and writhing. The earth is shaking. And that's when you hear it. It's a sound you cannot explain. It is so loud and so piercing that you cover your ears and still it does no good. You feel like your head is shattering from the sound. You curl up into a tight ball, trying to protect yourself from the shaking ground, the booming noises, and then your friend grabs your arm and points to the sky. A dark cloud rises from Mount Vesuvius, from Heracles' mountain. Inside the cloud, you see flashes of lightning and flames. Your mother's story might have been right, Perhaps this is what Hercules saw. And as you watch the cloud grow and darken, the sun begins to disappear. The mountain is over six miles away, but it might as well be on your doorstep for how quickly the clouds begin to cover the sky. As the cloud fans out, you begin to wonder if this truly is the end of the world. If the gods have come down from the sky, angry enough with humanity to destroy it all. Your friend is saying something. You cannot understand, your ears still ache, and all you can hear is a hollow ringing. Your other friend is making wild gestures, motioning in the direction of the harbor. You shake your head and point to your ears, trying to make them understand. And then finally you can hear again. Each of your friends is speaking quickly, almost out of breath. We have to flee. I have never seen anything like that before. We have to get to safety. Your friend, Phaedra, says. You nod. Yes, but is there anywhere still safe on this earth after that earthquake or from the fire of the mountain? It's time to make some choices. 
Ooh, is it time to make some choices? It is. All right, Genova, here we go. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Genova, you are with four friends this morning, Julian, Phaedra, Marius, and Helena. Julian is concerned about his family. His elderly father, wife, and two small children live in Pompeii. He decides that he is going to return to his villa and see if they can wait out the storm of fire and ash. He offers you a spot at his hearth to pass the storm. Do you accept? Hmm, what are my other options? Phaedra does not believe that this storm can be waited out. She decides she's going to flee, leaving by the north gate and take refuge at her sister's home in Naples. This route will mean passing very closely to Mount Vesuvius, even closer to the eruption. Phaedra tells you that you will also be welcomed at her sister's house. Do you agree to flee with Phaedra? That sounds dicey. What's the, what's the next option? Marius believes that the safest way out of the city is to travel by the southern gate. This will take you the furthest from the mountain. It will be slower going as the roads aren't in great repair, but you should be able to get to safety, away from the mountain, into the city of Stabii, where Marius has friends who will take you in. Do you choose to flee with Marius? Mm, I don't know. I've been on that road. It's really rough. Helena tells you that escaping by land is futile. There is only one way out. Boat. She decides to take her chances at the harbor. She has a friend, a merchant, whose boat is currently docked there, and she is convinced that he will be able to take her across the harbor and to safety. Do you choose to follow her? Oh, this is rough. Huh. So, so let me just go over my options. My options are go north toward Mount Vesuvius. Don't like that one. Go south over roads in bad repair. Don't like that one. Shelter in place or leave by boat. There's another way. Going east, right? Over the steep mountain passes. Yeah, there is another way. Um, It's a choice that no one has offered for a reason. You can go east, but it would mean going through steep mountain passes. 
You glance to the steep mountains to the east. You've seen a few people running towards them, freedmen and women, servants, shepherds, people who know those closed and crowded paths up the mountains. Even if the sun weren't darkened by the ever-present cloud, you wouldn't chant your luck fleeing to the mountains. You could easily break a leg or other limb and be slowed down. No east. It's north, south, boat, or shelter in place. So those are the options you're left with. Do you go with Marius to the southern gate, follow Phaedra and head north towards Mount Vesuvius, hurry to the harbor with Helen, or shelter in place with Julian? I think I'm going to regret this, but I think I'm going to choose shelter in place. Okay, I'm going to have a drink before I continue because uh, shit's going to go down, babe. You are shaking so badly that you can hardly stand. Your mouth is dry, beyond dry. You are not sure you can take another step. You nod at Julian. I am not sure I can handle the journey. I would be grateful if I could pass out this storm with you and your family. Julian claps you on the back and smiles. Of course, friend. Come, let us get inside and out of this ash. You and Julian stumble home towards his villa on the southern outskirts of Pompeii. It is a good distance from the mountain, and you think you will be safe here. Outside his villa, his dog is tied up. It howls and whines, barking at the swiftly falling ash that coats everything. You should let that dog go, you say. You hate the thought of the poor creature frightened and unable to seek shelter. I would, but my daughter loves that dog. The strangest thing happened, though. Yesterday, the dog bit her. Took a big chunk out of her hand. The dog has never done that before, so we tied it up out here while we try to figure out what happened. It would be kinder to let it run free. It needs shelter in a storm like this. Julian unties the dog and moves it to a covered area, then reties the dog to the column. Happy now? You nod. Although you would be much happier if he just let the dog go and take its chances in the storm. But you won't argue with him now. Not when things seem so dire. Instead, the two of you head inside, where you are greeted by his family and servants. Julian's wife's face is ashen as she looks at you both. What is happening out there? What should we do? Julian laughs. It's a hollow sound, one he's only using to mask his own fear. We will wait out the storm here. This is a strong house. It survived the earthquake of 63. It will make it through whatever little ash storm is going on outside. His wife still looks worried, but her face brightens. Now, servants, we will have to make sure to keep the water covered, free from ash. We will have to take turns sweeping the roof and the doorways. There's no use surviving if we're all covered in ashes. Right, Julian says. Let's have a cup of wine to steady our nerves, shall we? It's going to be a long night. You look around. Something about being shut up in this house feels wrong. You can feel a slow panic creeping into your bones. Do you, A, take the cup of wine and try to settle in for the evening, or B, decide to cut and run, making for the north, the harbor, or the south? I think at this point I need a drink. Yeah, that's how I would be feeling as well. So, you take the cup of wine that Julian offers. Your nerves are so frayed that you're not sure you could manage to leave this house again. Going back into that storm of ash and flaming stone seems the most foolish thing in the world. The air outside is so dry you can barely breathe. You will be much safer inside, under the protection of a strong roof. You let the wine do its work, forgetting for a while where you are and what is happening around you. All throughout the day, the servants bustle in and out of the villa, sweeping ashes away, keeping the roof from caving in with the weight of the stones that are falling from the sky. Everyone huddles in inner rooms, away from the windows. 
You let the wine continue to do its work, and soon you are quite drunk. Sleep comes and fits and starts, and when the night finally falls, you begin to wonder if you've made a poor choice. You hear the steady rain of rock on the roof tiles. The air inside the villa is oppressively hot, and you have precious little water left to drink. The children are crying. Julian blusters back and forth, trying to keep everyone calm. You are certain that some of the servants have slipped away under the cover of darkness, and you don't blame them. You wonder if you could still make a run for it, but your legs feel wobbly and it hurts to breathe. So you close your eyes and wait for the storm to end. So let's take a break here and talk about what happened if you stayed and sheltered in place. And I have to say that speaking from personal experience, I have weathered two natural disaster events where I had a choice like this. One was uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York, and one was the um, COVID pandemic in New York. And both times I chose to shelter in place. So I really understand why people make that choice. Absolutely. There are real logistical reasons why people have no other choice but to shelter in place. And I think it's super important. Like, obviously, with hindsight, we know that was the wrong choice. But You know, people do have elderly people, ill people, heavily pregnant people. We know that amongst the remains in Pompeii was a very heavily pregnant woman. And the entire family stayed with her because she was about eight months or eight and a half months pregnant. She couldn't she couldn't flee. And the family decided to stay with her and they all expired in um, one of the villas in Pompeii. It's a very famous sort of story. And I wanted to to make sure that when we look at why people chose to shelter in place, we look at it from the complexity it deserves. It wasn't just that people were silly. It wasn't just that they didn't know any better. It's that they also had to make choices based on the um, health and well-being of the people around them. And one of the things that it's super hard to understand is just how difficult it would be to breathe. If you were asthmatic, if you were elderly, every breath would be painful and it would be really difficult to walk. Yeah. So um, that brings us to more about what happened to you if you sheltered in place. And again, to a lot of people, this might sound like a terrible option. But as Jen said, there were a lot of reasons people couldn't just run away in Pompeii. In Julian's case, he had an elderly father and two small children. He was afraid they wouldn't make the journey out of the city. The journey out of Pompeii would be a fraught one with falling ash, pumice, and fire. Buildings groaned and toppled under the weight of the falling debris. So there was all this falling debris, too. You like to think that it's just like super clear cut. Some people chose at the beginning to shelter in place and realized that was a bad idea when their roof started to cave in. And then they tried leaving. If you were able to navigate your way out of the city with, say, a family of five, then you had to worry about being trampled by other fleeing refugees. Like if you have little kids, you had to worry about keeping up a pace to make sure your family was safe and together. And you had to contend with the very air you're breathing, air that was so dry and devoid of moisture that it threatened to dehydrate you with every step you took. Fleeing was an option, but not always the best option for some people. And I could so see how Initially, you don't know what a volcanic eruption is even or what's happening. It might seem like sheltering in place is the safest option. Sadly, sheltering in place was a terrible choice. We all know what happened to those who sheltered in place. Pompeii would be struck by several pyroclastic flows. This happened during the early morning hours of the, uh, you know, 25th of October. When does the eruption start, Jen? It's like 10 a.m. or so? It's about 10 a.m. on the 24th, and it goes through the night. I think the final pyroclastic flow is either the early hours just before dawn or like maybe around 8 or 9 a.m. It's about 24 hours of eruption. Okay, so you're, you're weathering 24 hours of eruption at the end of it. In the small hours, in the early morning hours of the next day, you get these pyroclastic flows. 
And these happened when the huge erupting gas cloud lost its energy and began to fall back down to Earth. As the gas cloud fell, it brought with it one of the deadliest stages of the eruption. These superheated columns of gas were what sealed the fate of the people of both Pompeii and Herculaneum who chose to stay or were stuck there. This is a quote from an article on science.org. Quote, A pyroclastic flow is the wall of death that entombed the ancient Roman city of Pompeii. These blackened, billowing clouds of 7,000 degrees Celsius, gas, ash, and rock thundered down the slopes of erupting volcanoes at speeds of up to 725 kilometers per hour, 5 to 600 miles an hour, approximately, I'm guessing, incinerating and demolishing most everything in their path. Now, a new study finds pyroclastic flows owe their lethal speed and range to a cushion of air that forms beneath them. National Geographic reports, This layer of air allows the ashen flow to float above the landscape, cutting down on friction and increasing the plume's speed and distance. So there were several pyroclastic flows at the end stage of this eruption, but the first one would have been fatal. Here's what recent research tells us about this fatal part of the eruption. This is a quote from an article in The Guardian, quote, And I had to give you this because it tells you about, like, it's all the gross details Jenny wants about brains being boiled. That's what I want. That's what I live for. Quote, The study by researchers from the Department of Earth and Geoenvironmental Sciences of the University of Bari, in collaboration with the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanography, INGV, and the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh, has revealed the duration of the so-called pyroclastic flow, a dense, fast-moving flow of solidified lava pieces, volcanic ash, and hot gases that hit the ancient Roman city minutes after the volcano erupted. The lethal cloud had, quote within the quote, a temperature of over 100 degrees and was composed of CO2, chlorides, particles of incandescent ash, and volcanic glass, said Roberto Isaiah, senior researcher of the Vesuvius Observatory of the INGV. The aim of the work was to develop a model to try and understand and quantify the impact of pyroclastic flows on the inhabited area of Pompeii, about 6 miles or 10 kilometers from Vesuvius, he added. The study confirms that the inhabitants had no escape, and most of those who died suffocated in their homes and beds or in the streets and squares of the city. Isaiah's model estimates the gases, ash, and volcanic particles would have engulfed the city for between 10 and 20 minutes. That's what happens if you shelter in place, kids. Yeah. After a day and a night of violent eruption, those who had chosen to stay in Pompeii would meet their end in about 15 minutes. Their end would have been brutal, with superheated gases washing over them and freezing them in time and space forever. Their brains would have vitrified from the heat. Oh, now you love a vitrification. You know I love vitrified brains, Jen. So at this point, you've accepted the cup of wine, you've stayed the night at Julian's, and things did not work out well. I've chosen my fate. During the early morning hours, the first pyroclastic flow sweeps over the city, killing you instantly, vitrifying your brain and entombing your remains in time. You die with Julian and his whole family. In 2,000 years, gentlemen scholars come along, pour plaster into the ash cavity your corpse made, and carted around to museums for people to stare and wonder at the end. I don't think I'm going to accept that drink after all. Just rethinking that cup of wine. <laughs> I'm glad you said no. Dionysus also approves in this instance. Just in this instance, though. Yeah. Now, let's say you chose to leave Julian's villa before you accepted that cup of wine. As you exit, you untie the poor dog. Thank you. The beast deserves a right to find its own shelter in this storm. That's the most important part of this whole choose-your-own-adventure is the dog lives. 
The dog lives, guys. That dog makes it. You begin to walk south, hoping to catch up with Marius. But Marius is a good few hours ahead of you, and the stream of refugees is intense. The crowds of people block the south gate, and traffic seems to be at a standstill. You move along very slowly. Now you're unsure if this was a wise decision after all. Once you are through the gate, the traffic is still slow, but at least you're moving along at a decent pace. By about 4 p.m., you make it to Stabii, though it's only about four and a half miles from Pompeii. You feel like you've been walking for days. Your throat is so dry you can barely breathe. The lines of refugees have moved so slowly, sometimes completely immobile after a bit of flaming debris hits the earth around you. You have wrapped your nose and mouth with a strip you've torn from your tunic. It does little to protect you from the brutal air, but it's better than nothing. As you arrive in Stabia, you're surprised to find a familiar face. Marius is sitting outside a well-kept villa. He smiles. You made it, you nod. I decided at the last moment to join you. Wise decision, old friend. I'm going to take a moment's rest and continue onwards. If you are too tired, you are welcome to stay here at my friend's villa. But I have a strange feeling that is drawing me to continue my journey. Do you, A, stay in the villa in Stabii, or B, continue on with Marius to the next town? You know, I've really had it with all these terrible roads and this horrible debris falling from the sky and ash clouds and the dirt and I can't breathe and it's really terrible. I think I'm going to stay here. I've gone far enough. That's a decision I can respect. Sadly, this is a poor decision. Many people thought they were safe in Stabii, so you're not alone in choosing to shelter here. One of the most famous victims of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, Pliny the Elder, chose to spend the night in Stabii. It did not work out well for him. Pliny the Elder was captain of the naval fleet in the area. He was staying with his sister and nephew in Mycenaeum and got a message from a woman named Rectina. She was writing because she was in need of rescue. Pliny agreed to rescue her and also a friend who was living in Stabii. He launched a light ship and began the process of rescuing his friends, but the seas were very rough, and by the time Pliny reached Stabii, it was clear he could not continue on with his journey. He delayed that evening in Stabii, preparing to set out in the morning. But morning didn't come. The sun did not rise. Well, I mean, it did, but it was blocked by a huge ash cloud, so it seemed like it didn't rise. In the morning, realizing that the situation was now very fucking dire, Pliny set out for the beach to see if it was possible to escape the disaster by sea. But by now, the seas were too rough, the winds driving the boats onto shore, and the vessels that Pliny had chosen for the rescue mission were too light to sail the ferocious waves. Pliny and many others died on the shores of the beach, suffocated by toxic gas. It is very likely that had you stayed the night in Stabia, you would have also met your end by a toxic gas the next morning during the final phase of the eruption. I might as well have just sheltered in place in Pompeii, really. Exactly. Or you might have met your end hunkered down in an abandoned villa as the roof caved in from the weight of the rocks that fell on it that night, or from the dry air and lack of water. I mean, there are just endless possibilities. The entire roof could have just caved in on you because there's no one to get the, the rocks off. Or you could have been buried alive in entombed because the doorways fill up. I mean, yeah, it could have died on the road, just, you know, pummeled to death by the pumice that was falling from the sky, right? Exactly. So, once again, you're dead. Bad choices. Oh, no. <laughs> but let's rewind. Let's say you make a different choice. Okay, so I think I'll continue on with Marius after Stabia, after Stabii, Stabii. Are we saying Stabii? Is that what we're really saying? 
I keep saying stabby eye. I think it's right, but, you know. I keep imagining someone getting stabbed in their eyeball. You know, who wants to stay in a place called stabby eye anyway? Marius, let's go. Let's get out of here. Okay. You and Marius continue to travel on. The roads are still filled with many weary travelers, but Marius sets a punishing pace. It is almost beyond your endurance, but somehow you keep up. Marius tells you it is now passed on, but there is no light, just more darkness. You both keep stumbling forwards, not sure how much further you have to walk, only certain that you must keep pressing forward, and you do. You walk and walk, and finally, there is an end to the ash cloud. You can start to see the sun. Both of you laugh and cheer. Soon, the air you're breathing is clear and cool, and you cannot help but hug each other and cry. You have survived Pompeii. I lived! You did! On the third try, I lived. On the third try of the first option. So you don't get a third try in real life. <laughs> so one way you could survive is if you pressed on to the south past Stabii, if you could make that really hard journey. And I actually think, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, but this scenario that you've painted here is the more difficult way to survive because I left late, right? Well, in this, we're assuming they left about everyone leaves at the same time. But yes, uh, at this point, when when you chose not to stay at the at the villa, you kind of left it late. You should have left almost immediately. One of the things we know about this way is you could survive this way. It was a very long walk to be free of the ash cloud. Um, it was a very crowded way. A lot of people chose this way. And a lot of people left leaving the city too late and died along this way. And people got caught in the south gate. There's like all these bottlenecks, which is another problem. Yeah, they would get trampled and everything else, you know. I found this quote at science.org, which talked about what happened to people who left it too late and got caught at those gates, because it sounds quite dire. Quote, the team examined seven plaster casts from Pompeii. Six were recovered from a city gate called Porta Nola. I couldn't figure out if this was the South Gate or not, but let's just go with it. It's a gate. The Portanola bodies were positioned on top of a thick layer of pumice, which suggests that they survived the first phase of the eruption and had attempted to flee the city after the pumice had stopped falling. Wading through this debris would have been extremely difficult, one of the researchers, Galello, says. Two victims suffered leg fractures, and another appears to have used a falling tree branch as a makeshift walking stick. So people were having leg fractures just trying to walk through this stuff. I feel like I, I tried to hammer this point home earlier. It wasn't safe to be outside. You could have a leg fracture. You could fall. You could be injured. You could be trampled. We all think run for it. But honestly, there was a lot of danger in just trying to run for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, running for it would not necessarily seem like intuitively the best choice. Exactly. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters. With captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard, it's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, let's backtrack. Let's go all the way to the beginning, when you and your friends are still deciding what to do. 
do you shelter in place with Julian? We've we've told you not to do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do you go south with Marius? It's possible that you could survive as long as you don't take that pit stop and stabby eye. Do you go north with Phaedra towards the volcano or go by sea with Helena? You know what? I think this time I'm going to do something completely different and go by sea. I support that. You look between your friends, not sure what the right choice is. You finally turn to Helena. Let's go to the harbor. I'd rather take my chances on the seas. Helena smiles. Agreed. You rush to the harbor. The earth has stopped shaking, but the seas are roiled up. They rock back and forth across the earth, slapping it violently. You are not sure that it will be possible to launch a ship in such tumultuous waves. Helena stands on her tiptoes, looking for her friend. She spots a shock of bright red hair and then leaps up. There, that's him. Come on, we have to hurry. She grabs your hand and you race in the direction she pointed. You dodge the waves of people also hurrying towards boats. Helena, aren't you a sight for sore eyes, Helena's friend says. Felix, I'm so grateful that you're still here, he nods. It's a good thing you moved so quickly. We have to get out of the harbor now. The waves are very rough and the wind is moving inland. If we delay even a few moments, I fear we will be stuck here. He is keeping something from you. You're not sure how you know it, but you do. Something about what he doesn't say makes you wary. Come, I've got room for two more on my ship. Do you join Helena on the ship or remain on the dock? I don't like that thing about something he's not saying, but I don't like the idea of remaining on this dock either, so I guess I'm getting on the boat. Okay. You squash your worries and decide to board the ship with Helena. You've made this crossing before to Capri and other places. While you don't love ships, you think you can manage this voyage if it means fleeing Pompeii. The seas rock and roll beneath you. The waves are huge and come crashing into the shore pushing the boat closer and closer to the dock. The wind is against you. All of the rowers are already straining, trying to get the big ship to move out of the harbor. It seems like a losing battle. Felix is pacing the deck, shouting orders. His eyes are wide with terror. Now, get her out of the harbor now before it's too late. But it seems an impossible task. The surf is an impenetrable wall. Helena looks at you. Both of you pitch forward suddenly. As the boat surges forward towards the other moored boats, nearly smacking into them. Go, Felix screams, and somehow the boat moves forward. Against all reasoning, it crests the waves, and you are free from the harbor. Your progress is slow but forward. Felix wipes his forehead with his hand. Make for Capri. Keep away from the shores. That's where the waves will come from. For a moment, you're not sure you understand what he's talking about. Waves? What waves? Aren't you sailing on the waves? You don't understand what he means until it is too late. You feel the sea beneath the deck buck and roll violently, like a sea monster is rearing up beneath you. You almost topple over. Helena reaches for your elbow and turns you around. You are now both watching Pompeii. The city is burning. It's an otherworldly red in the distance. Helena points and you watch as the largest wave you've ever seen. A wave larger than a mountain rises up and swallows the city of Pompeii. First the harbor, and then it rushes through the streets, drowning everything in its path. Faster, lads, Felix screams. Where there's one wave, there will be another. Felix hands you each a broom. Sweep the decks. We cannot afford to have any ash on the decks or the entire ship could sink. You and Helena grasp each other's hands and say prayers to the earth shaker to the gods of the sea, 
and pray and hope for safe passage. Then you begin to sweep. You sweep for hours, keeping the deck as clear as possible. The ship rolls back and forward, and a few times you are certain it will sink. But somehow, somehow you make it safely through the eruption. The captain has put you mostly out to sea to avoid the worst of the great waves. But you are never so happy as when you are finally able to disembark on the island of Capri the next day. So let's break this one down. It is tough to know if you could actually escape by sea, and personally, I think that Jen's prognosis is a bit optimistic here. This is the biggest fanfic I've written. I don't know if you could escape by sea. I'd like to think you could. I think it was an option, but there are a lot of things we don't understand about what was going on in the sea that day. Exactly. And just the, you know, I'm just imagining the waves pummeling the shores and then the tsunamis coming and like the, you know, all the same pumice and ash that's landing on people on the roads is landing on you at sea. Like, I just can't imagine the boats that any boats getting out. Maybe a few did. Maybe this is one of the lucky ones. But it's it's hard for me to imagine. So we know a lot of people tried to escape by sea. And in theory, some were maybe successful, possibly. But there was a lot going against them. A safe exit by sea. Well, this is some of Jen's fanfic, as she said, because in theory, it would have been possible. But you would have had to get very, very lucky to escape this way. You really would have had to thread a needle here. And for a variety of reasons. First, as we've been saying the whole time, the winds were against you. The winds were blowing into shore. The winds during this time of year, autumn, we're going with autumn, were blowing inland towards Pompeii. And this made it a great time for ferrying goods into port, less fun for trying to get out of port. Because the winds were against you, that meant you need a ship that could cut through the waves and had enough people power at the oars to make it out of the harbor. I mean, obviously, sails were not going to work here. No, sails are utterly useless unless you want to continue crashing into other boats that are parked in, in dock. Right. The boat that Jen has chosen to use, correct me if I'm wrong, is a heavy merchant vessel with a lot of rowers, which would have been probably the boat that gives you the best chance, I'm guessing, right? That is indeed the boat. That is the boat of my fan fiction dreams. We just don't have the research to know that people made it out this way, although in theory it is possible some people did, but not many. The body trail is non-evident at sea. Well, it's so ancient, and you're talking ancient tsunamis and things like that. We just There's just no way of knowing. Right. Another of the big problems, in addition to the wind, is that the actual seas would have been extremely rough. There were earthquakes going on. All of those earthquakes that surrounded this eruption made for very, very rough seas. We know that there were a few tsunamis that hit Pompeii during the eruption cycle. Pliny explicitly describes one in that, in that cold open that we read. In order to safely escape, you would have had to time your voyage just right, going between eruptions and heading mostly straight out to sea. Staying too close to any shoreline would be a problem should more tsunamis happen, particularly at night. I mean, if you're by the shore, you're toast. You have to go out to sea. And just as a reminder, the boats at the time were not boats that were, you know, seagoing vessels so much. Like, they were rowing boats that tended to stay close to shore. So that's pretty iffy just in general. So fleeing by sea was a dangerous method of survival, and the captain would have had to make some counterintuitive choices here. Even if you could get clear of the treacherous waves just of the surf and the winds, there would have been ash and burning rock falling on the ships. That's super treacherous. We know many people did not make it out of Pompeii, Herculaneum, or Stabiae by sea. We know because we have found their bodies at the docks, preserved in ash. We know less about what happened to people who did go by sea, 
It's likely many of them did not survive either uh, because of how dangerous and rough the seas were. You would have to be super lucky. Escape by sea was very unlikely, but in theory, possible if you got incredibly lucky. So in this version, let's say that I trust my gut. I decide that I don't like what Felix isn't saying. I decide to stay on the beach, which I already know is a bad idea because you've said it, but let's say that's what I decide. (laughs) Okay, B, you stayed on the dock. This soon turns out to be a very poor choice. You watch as the water draws back from beneath the pier. As the water continues to peel back, you can see fish and the naked seabed. You've never seen the like of this before. And then you hear the screams. All around you, people are pointing out to the distance as a wave bigger than a mountain begins to rumble its way to shore. People are running, screaming, trampling each other to get out of the way of the rising sea. And you can do nothing. Your feet are glued to the ground as you watch the wave rising from the depths of the ocean come to meet the shore and swallow it whole. Well, that didn't end well. I mean, I told you. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty, Jen. <laughs> that is sort of the moral of, like, the story of Pompeii. Everyone can make the right choice if you know what the wrong ones are. Okay, so we rewind. You're standing in Pompeii on the morning of the eruption. You have choices. To the sea with Helena. We saw how that ended. Shelter in place with Julian. South with Marius. Or north with Phaedra. I really don't like that north situation. So here's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going to go south with Marius right away. That worked out for me last time. And I think starting even earlier is better. Okay. South with Marius. I'll come with you, Marius. Let's get out of the city while there's still time. Marius nods. Wrap your face and mouth with cloth, he says, tearing off a piece of his tunic to do so. There is something strange with this air, and I don't think it would do well to breathe it in. You agree and do the same. The city is an utter chaos. Most people are fleeing to their homes and towards the south gate. The south gate leads away from the mountains to Stabii and beyond. You glance over your shoulder and look at the thundering mountain behind you. You wish you hadn't looked back. The mountain is a looming black tower of darkness. A huge cloud shaped like a pine tree rises from the mountain and high into the sky. It blocks out all the light, but the mountain makes its own light. Red flames light the volcano. Lava slowly oozes down the sides of the mountain, far away. From this distance, it's only red streaks. Volcanic lightning illuminates the dark cloud above the mountain. And even here, in the center of town, the ash and stones have begun to rain down. You know that Phaedra was headed towards the north gate, towards the mountain. And you think it must have been madness that drove her in that direction. Marius grew up in Pompeii and knows the streets here like the back of his hand. He nimbly dodges in and out of the heavy traffic, avoiding falling stones and crowds. Soon you're at the south gate. You manage to slip out before the streams of refugees. But Marius does not slow his pace. We can stop when we reach Stabii, he says. It rapidly becomes dark as night. You stumble forward in the darkness. You pass others like you, refugees fleeing the city. They all have the same dazed expressions. Some are moving quickly, others slowly, causing long lines and traffic jams. A few times you almost stop, seeing a woman or child struggling to keep the pace of the crowds 
but Marius shakes his head and drags you along. This is survival, and you cannot stop. Along the way, you find a branch and are able to craft a makeshift torch. It is crucial as the ground before you is uneven and has had some damage from the last earthquake. You do not know how many hours have passed, only that every bone in your body aches and you want to lie down. Your breathing becomes labored. The air is so dry, and you regret not stopping to pick up water. You catch up to Marius and tap his shoulder. I can't breathe. I can't swallow. I need water. Marius's eyes are red-rimmed and wild. He shakes his head. Just a little longer, we're almost to Stabii. You are not sure you can make it any further. You shake your head and sit down on the ground. The exhaustion overtakes you. Marius shakes you roughly and places a cold rag on your forehead. You are not sure where this came from or how he made this miracle happen, but it is enough to rouse you. You continue to walk forward, making it to Stabii. You are utterly exhausted and feel like you cannot go on. What is the point? The world is in ruins. Marius looks angry. Something feels strange here. I do not think we are safe, and I do not think we can afford to delay. My friend's villa is just over there if you want to rest for the night, but I will be carrying on. Do you? Rest at the villa or carry on? We know both of these outcomes, and I'm not going to recap them. One of the things I didn't add into the complications is we're assuming you're an able-bodied person who's well and capable of walking and doesn't and doesn't have any accidents befall them along the way, right? That also increases your chances of survival. While I'm not going to recap these options, we know what happens both ways. I want to talk about what we know about the people who fled south. The people who fled south probably thought they were safe once they reached Stabii, but they weren't. The pyroclastic flows and fallout from the eruption did eventually reach Stabii. The seas here were too rough to sail, so Stabii was not a safe place to wait out the eruption. We know that the majority of people who perished fleeing the eruption died fleeing south via the south gate, and that's because this is where most of those bodies were found. As we said before, you know, we painted a picture of people breaking their legs trying to get through the south gate, trying to walk through the pumice. Now, there are many reasons why this bottleneck at the south gate and along the south path happened. So first off, the south seemed like the safest path of escape. It's the most intuitive. It's away from the volcano, and every step in that direction should have been a step closer to safety. Second, the winds were blowing inland and south, and that meant that the ash cloud and danger was also blowing inland and south, meaning that traveling south meant you inhaled more fumes and fallout. I mean, people wouldn't have known this necessarily, but that's how it worked out. This would make breathing super difficult if you were heading south for a start. And it also means that all that pumice, ash, and rock would continuously fall on you throughout your journey, weighing you down, even crushing you, possibly fracturing your leg bones. What's interesting about this is that it looks like going north was heading into the gullet, but actually going south maybe would have been heading into the gullet. Based on how the wind was going, yes. So while you could escape this way, you had to be quick, you had to pack light, and you had to be able to pick your way out of bottlenecks and through crowds. But despite all of these issues, as long as you kept going south and you could move fast, that's key, and you were able-bodied, you had a chance of survival. You were better off leaving sooner rather than later. No second guessing. Absolutely none, and just don't stop. Just keep walking until you drop. As someone who did a half marathon, when I got finished with that half marathon, I was so done. And... In order to be safe in a lot of these places, you would have to walk the equivalent of a half marathon or a full marathon. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. 
So far, we've tried going south. We've tried sheltering in place. We've tried to escape by sea. There's only one option we haven't tried. North. Straight into the flaming gullet of that sexy volcano. I mean, this still seems like a real bad idea. <laughs> it, it really does. I'll go north with Phaedra, you say. All of your friends look at you as if you've gone mad. All except Phaedra. The roads to the north are better maintained, she explains, and the wind is blowing towards the south. All we have to do is keep walking to Naples. We should be safe there. Your friends look horrified. Phaedra, you are talking about walking right into the path of that mountain, of the eruption. That is madness. Phaedra shakes her head. Trust me. And you do. You stop on your way out of the city at Phaedra's home and grab a hunk of bread, cheese, a torch, and a small water skin. You take nothing else. Phaedra sets a grueling pace, and you exit the city by 10.30 a.m. The roads between Naples and Pompeii are indeed well-maintained, even with the damage from the most recent eruption. You are able to easily follow the path. The air here is oppressively hot and dry. It's hard to breathe. You've covered your mouth and nose with a torn bit of your tunic. Not as many people are fleeing in this direction, but some follow you, thinking maybe you know a way to safety. So there are not as many refugees on this path, right? Well, we don't actually know how many took this path or not. And this path is an interesting path for a reason we're going to come to in a minute. I don't want to spoil it. But um, a lot of people would probably not have thought to run in this direction. It is indeed running into the direction closest to the mountain. You have to pass quite close to the mountain in order to get to Naples. Right. And also, like, the air is very hot and close and hard to breathe. But was there the level of pumice and ash falling on you in this direction like there was in the south? Yes, there was absolutely pumice and ash falling down here on you. You probably would have had more flaming projectiles because you were a little bit closer to the mountain. You might have been able to see lava in the distance. A lot of people freak out and think like lava is the most destructive part of a volcanic eruption. And it is incredibly destructive. But lava is actually quite slow moving. You can usually outpace lava unless it's coming from like a really steep incline or has something else speeding it along. Like one of the things that was super deadly about the Mount St. Helens eruption was because it was a snow covered mountain when it erupted, the lava melted the snow, which created these, um, I think they're called lahars, which are fast moving rivers of like water and snow and mud and everything else. That wouldn't have been the case here in Pompeii. You would have had lava. It probably would have been slow moving. Gotcha. Okay, so things are pretty deadly here as well, but the, the roads are better and possibly not as crowded. Exactly. You arrive at Herculaneum, a seaside resort town, at about 1 p.m. Herculaneum is just four miles from Vesuvius. This close, the mountain looks like a monster, a creature sent down from the gods to devour you whole. Even with the mountain so close, you can't catch your breath. You motion to Phaedra that you need to take a break. Phaedra shakes her head. This is the most dangerous part of the journey, she says. We have to be quick through here. We are too close to the mountain. Do you take a break or continue on with Phaedra? I think I just need a little break, not a long one, just a, a few minutes to catch my breath. Okay, so you take your break. You understand the logic of Phaedra's words, but you cannot move. I will catch up to you, you say. You sit for a few moments. You cannot gulp in this air. It is too heavy and dry. Instead, you take shallow breaths, trying to get your body ready for the rest of the journey. You are not sure how long you've sat here, but it feels like a while. Your eyes turn to the mountain and notice something strange. 
you see the slow flowing lava and also something else, a wall of ash rolling off the mountain like an avalanche. You barely have time to register what you're seeing before the cloud of superheated gas consumes you. So lessons of this episode, never take a break. Mm-hmm. Never take a break, even if you can't breathe, even for just a few minutes. Believe it or not, following Phaedra and traveling north was a very smart idea. But stopping here at Herculaneum, even for a few minutes, would be a huge mistake. This is a quote from an excellent Wired article about how to survive a volcano. The quote is by Cody Cassidy, and it breaks down all the directions you could take to survive and why north is probably the best way to safety. Quote, Herculaneum sits barely five miles east of the volcanic vent, but for the first few hours of the eruption, the prevailing winds largely spare it from most of the ash and pumice. Unfortunately, when Vesuvius first taps into the deeper magma and develops its first pyroclastic flow, the heated gas and ash will move directly into Herculaneum and kill everyone almost instantly. Archaeologists have found scorch marks in the city that suggest the cloud may have been as hot as 930 degrees Fahrenheit. And because its victims were encased in negative spaces of ash, archaeologists can see their final frozen poses. These poses show almost no signs of the boxer-like defensive stance typically taken in extreme heat, which suggests to Patron that the victims in Herculaneum may have been killed so quickly that they did not even consciously register discomfort. Patron even found a glassy piece of brain matter in the skull of one Herculaneum victim, suggesting that the cloud heated this person's brain so quickly it vitrified. Vitrified, glassy brain. This is my favorite kind of brain, babe. It's crunchy. So yeah, taking a break is a bad idea. Now, the timing of your escape here is key, because going north would only be a safe way to escape during the first few hours of the eruption. This Wired article theorized that the first pyroclastic flow that wiped out Herculaneum happened around 2 p.m. So essentially, you had until 2 p.m. to get through Herculaneum and be on the other side of the eruption. You would have to move quickly. It's a 13-mile walk from Pompeii to Naples, and you have a ticking clock or exploding volcano that is waiting to consume you. And when I was reading this article, I think it posited that you needed to have a pace of something like three to four miles an hour in order to make it through well into Naples and safety by the time of the final eruption. That isn't a jog, and it's not speed walking. It is a brisk walk. But it's a brisk walk through some pretty harrowing conditions. Not as harrowing as the South Gate, but pretty harrowing. Yeah. And I would say this, this is assuming you have no problems, the roads are safe, you can get around people, like making those three to four miles an hour is is a decent clip that you have to move along and you have to not get exhausted and fall over and stop. And you also have to be able to get there. Like who knows what the road would have looked like. You can maintain, you know, a brisk walk for a while, but can you maintain a brisk walk unbroken with no breaks at all, no water breaks, nothing for 13 miles? Exactly. So Jenny... You're going to carry on and chance it to get to Naples. I think that's the last chance left to me. <laughs> so you and Phaedra continue on. You do not stop at Herculaneum. Instead, you press forward. It's only another five miles until you can be in the safety of Phaedra's sister's home. You walk through the day that feels like an endless night. You turn briefly and see a cloud of ash rolling off the mountain like an avalanche, rolling down the slopes and toward Herculaneum. You are grateful that Phaedra shamed you into carrying on. Night falls, you stumble forward in the darkness, following the weak light of your torch. 
You almost cannot believe when the air begins to change. Both you and Phaedra rip off the layers of cloth you've put on your mouth to protect yourself from the ash and gulp in deep, greedy breaths. You rub your eyes, convinced they must be deceiving you. But you can almost see the sky, the actual sky. It's dark and inky black, but you know it's the sky and not the ash cloud. Both of you whoop with joy. Your heart's lifted as you practically jog the final mile to Phaedra's sister's house. The entire household is already awake when you arrive. Refugees have been streaming into Naples all day. Phaedra's sister hugs both of you. She tells you that she prayed to the gods for your deliverance. You do not have the heart to tell her the horrors you've seen or the fact that you doubt the gods intervened on your behalf. You look at Phaedra. Thank you. You saved my life. So... There you have it. Evidence that you could have survived Pompeii. The best way out was most likely north. And if you were very lucky and very quick and you made all the right choices, you had a couple of options. You could have made all the right choices in a few different directions, but you would have really had to maintain that pace in very challenging circumstances. And it's not just that like you had to be able-bodied, but you also had to be very lucky. You did. It's a miracle anyone made it away from this volcanic eruption. Because the eruption of Pompeii was incredibly deadly and ferocious. This is another quote from that excellent Wired article, which breaks down the eruption. Quote, A volcano's explosive power largely depends on how its magma formed, which, contrary to what one might assume, is not from the Earth's molten core. Instead, it's created when unusual heat or circumstances contrive to melt the mantle or lower crust. Because pressure increases the melting point of the mantle by strengthening its chemical bonds, the mantle is almost entirely solid even in the extreme heat of the lower depths. Magma creation requires something unusual. It requires either unusual heat, an unusual drop in pressure, or an unusual pollutant, generally water, to enter the mantle that lowers its melting temperature. This is so volcano nerdy right now. I know, I love it. You have to give me just a little volcano nerd. (laughs) What is a mantle? Okay, so, all right, all right, all right, coming back in here. So, what it's saying is once the water and the heat combine to partially melt the rock of the mantle, like, it's the different layers in the Earth's crust is what they're talking about. Okay, this this is lava below the Earth's crust. Gotcha. It's below, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we're talking about what is happening to this mantle. Yeah, essentially when water and other things begin to get in there. Right, and it's bad. It's really, it's not good. Right, so water lowers the melting temperature of rock by weakening its chemical bonds. Water does to rock what salt does to an icy road. Your worrisome situation in Vesuvius can be blamed on the latter, which is the process responsible for many of the world's most powerful volcanoes. The intrusion of water is the result of an oceanic plate sliding beneath a continental one. In this case, the sliver of the African plate covering the Adriatic Sea slid, and indeed continues to slide, let's be clear, beneath the Eurasian plate along Italy's east coast. In slabs beneath oceans, a small amount of water can infiltrate into their structure, and because water lowers a plate's melting temperature, this seemingly innocuous seepage is the first step of an incredibly volatile reaction that has led to some of the most catastrophic eruptions in history. See Krakatoa, 1883. My nerddom loves the Krakatoa eruption. Jen loves that Krakatoa. Let me tell you what. Anyway, so once the water and heat combine to partially melt the rock of the mantle, the lighter magma bubbles to the surface, melts the surrounding crust, and picks up new components. 
This doesn't always increase a volcano's destructive power, but as luck would have it, Mount Vesuvius is located on a thick bed of limestone. Lucky us! Limestone and heat results in the volcanically unfortunate combination of calcium oxide and CO2. In other words, standing in Pompeii places you in the hazard zone of carbonated magma, which sure does sound bad, Jen. Not exactly sure I understood all that, but it sounds like bad news. It's super bad news. So, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius was a VEI-5, one of the most deadly eruptions recorded, mostly because of how many people live so close to the volcano. And of course, it's easy to think, well, why live near a volcano? Most of them usually go off at some point in time, don't they? And while that is true, living near a volcano had many benefits. Rich soil, perfect for growing crops, hot springs, etc. And they still do today. Look, living on the east coast of, of America is not a great idea with the North Atlantic hurricane season. We just got through Tropical Storm Idalia, and yet we all live here. I mean, climate change is certainly shaking things up, but we continue to live in the path of various natural disasters, and you never know when the next one's going to hit. It could be not for a thousand years. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. Yeah. There are benefits to living near a volcano, and most of the time they outweigh the cons. It's why so many people today still live near volcanoes. Mount Vesuvius erupts in cycles. The last major eruption was in 1944. It will erupt again and the people of Naples live in the shadow of this threat. Mount Vesuvius has erupted 50 times, including the famous eruption in 79 AD, and a prehistoric eruption that wiped an entire settlement off the map. I wanted to pause here because it's possible that this eruption was actually preserved in that legend I mentioned earlier. Diodorus Siculus tells us, quote, The Phlegrean Plain, or the Plain of Fire, from a hill which anciently vomited out fire, now called Vesuvius. Hercules passed through this plain during his labors on his way to Sicily. I wonder if this story of Hercules, his mention of this plain of fire, ties back to the ancient people who died here when the mountain erupted and turned the fields to flames. It's just a thought. How long ago was that older eruption, Jen? I couldn't find the dates, but it's, it's well prehistoric, like Stone Age. Wow. So I wanted to end this episode with Pliny's words, just as we began, because I cannot help coming back to the words of this survivor. Pliny waited many years to write down his account of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. He sent them in two different letters to Tacitus, with the belief that these accounts would be recorded by Tacitus and make his uncle's death famous. But these accounts did more than just that. They helped us to understand volcanic eruptions. They are still incredibly valuable and important all these centuries later. So let's let the immortal words of Pliny close out this episode. Jenny, take it away. Quote, It now grew rather lighter, which we imagine to be rather the forerunner of an approaching burst of flames, as in truth it was, than the return of day. However, the fire fell at a distance from us, then again we were immersed in thick darkness, and a heavy shower of ashes rained upon us, which we were obliged every now and then to stand up to shake off. Otherwise we should have been crushed and buried in the heap. I might boast that during all this scene of horror, not a sigh or expression of fear escaped me, had not my support been grounded in that miserable, though mighty, consolation that all mankind were involved in the same calamity and that I was perishing with the world itself." At last, this dreadful darkness was dissipated by degrees, like a cloud or smoke 
The real day returned, and even the sun shone out, though with a lurid light, like when an eclipse is coming on. Every object that presented itself to our eyes, which were extremely weakened, seemed changed, being covered deep with ashes as if with snow. We returned to Messinum, where we refreshed ourselves as well as we could and passed an anxious night between hope and fear, though indeed with a much larger share of the latter. For the earthquake still continued, while many frenzied persons ran up and down heightening their own and their friends' calamities by terrible predictions. However, my mother and I, notwithstanding the danger we had passed and that which still threatened us, had no thoughts of leaving the place till we could receive some news of my uncle. So the mother lived. That's good. Pliny and his mother made choices. They both lived because they did not go to Stabii. Unfortunately, Pliny the Elder did go to Stabii and did not live. So that's it for this week. Come say hello on social. We're at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and TikTok. And while Twitter is still circling the drain, we continue to remain there. I'm not calling it X. I refuse to call it X. Never going to happen. We're at Ancient Hist Fan there. We also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. Our Patreon is literally what keeps the podcast going. It keeps the lights on. So please, if you're able, patronage starts such as $3 a month. You get access to many extra episodes and you're going to get to hear us have lots of guests on and watch the last days of Pompeii. We don't have any Patreon members to thank this week. So if you would like to be thanked in the next episode, now is your chance to sign up. Thank you so much, and we will see you, possibly, depending on our schedule. We don't know what's happening day to day next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.